We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Kids, at this time, you're dismissed. Thanks for joining us in worship through song and communion. We like to um, we like to put communion sometimes prior to the sermon because um, well because I came to Christ through through not taking communion and seeing my brother take it. And I said, huh, he's got something I don't. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a gospel witness. And, um, we celebrate the Lord through communion. And uh, there are non-believers among us. And so um, it's, a, it's a great blessing to do that. Not just at the end of the service. Nothing magical to it. But um, just trying to be intentional with how we use our, our time together. Amen? Well... It is Super Bowl Sunday. I a little orange. I don't know if you can see it from there. It's little specks of orange. You can't see it. Uh, you need to have your eyes checked, Alan. You know, <laughs> I do have a, a spiritual pastor joke for this Sunday. You guys want to hear it? It's the best one I could find. So here it is. I know Bobby's like, oh man, here we go, Newman. Uh huh. So um, biblically speaking, there are no Bengals in the Bible. But there, but there are rams, and every time you see a ram, it gets slaughtered. <laughs> I know, I know. So, I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win. <laughs> yes, open up your Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2. We've been learning a, a, a bunch of stuff. Just by being in it a week, we learned the word apocalyptic last week, right? The apocalypse, like zombies and, and stuff, right? And uh, we saw that, that not only Christians are interested in the last days, in the uncovering or the revealing of the things to come. It's also non-believers so this is a great time to invite your friends, neighbors, because they are asking these same questions of what is to happen in those days to come? What's the future? And thank the Lord, we have it written on scriptures telling us. And so these are great opportunities to be evangelistic. Uh, last week, we learned about the theme of this book talked about how it's it's kind of like uh, it's 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 a lot of kingdom language and we're using the, the phrase a forever kingdom and we're going to see this theme uh, carried throughout the book 
kind of like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, right? All you music lovers out there, like dun 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 dun, like that was stated right in the beginning of that symphony, and then that theme or motif is transferred and flipped around and who's throughout the symphony. It's the same thing with the book of Daniel, same thing with the whole Bible, right? And so this book is telling you about kingdoms. It's going to tell you chapter by chapter. It's going to flip the theme around. You're going to learn more and more about it. We learn the key verse uh, in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It's up here. Let me read it for you again. This kind of summarizes or captures this kingdom thought. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And watch this. Here's verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we learned also last week that the people of God, when they were in Babylon, they weren't just like supposed to wait for this kingdom and twiddle their thumbs and just be a waste of space. They had purpose. How do we know that? The, the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote to the people the to, the, uh, to Israel while they were in Babylon, while they're in exile. And he said, hey, you got a job to do. Here's what he told them. This is Jeremiah 20. 9-7, he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you shall find your welfare. So, Christian, you are not necessarily in exile. You're not in Babylon right now, although the ways and the heart of Babylon still exist today. But you are called to the same thing as believers. You are called to trust in the Lord and watch him. And this was last week. Watch him be generous to you as he equips you and helps you to stand firm. As he continues to show his faithfulness to you. And as you trust him, he will help you bear fruit. So I pray that last week and the last seven days was a great encouragement to you as you walk with God. You would do just that, stand firm and bear fruit and trust Him that He is faithful. That's where we ended last week. So this morning, um, I'd like to just start by asking a question to, um, to set us up. Um, before the question, though, we are in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel, a lot of stories. You could just be tempted to be like, Oh, that was a nice story that Newman shared again, right? And you could, without thinking, almost take it as that's not actual history where God came and worked in real time and in real space. This morning, I am especially excited for you to see that you become a part of this story. You are inserted in chapter 2. Um, and uh, it's, it's going to be a prophetic dream, and it's not just something that happened in the past. 
And it's, so it's going to be a little bit different of a sermon today. We're going to be studying some history. We're going to be studying some future. And I pray that, that, that this happens today, that you walk out of here and you have lunch and you have a very peaceful evening filled with quietness and reading books and poetry. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That, hey, by knowing the future, knowing what is to come, that it's going to affect how you live today. Okay? So here's the question. Let me ask you this. What would it take for you to feel established? What would it take for you to feel established? Kind of that feeling of, oh, yeah, I have arrived, right? I'm there. I made it. How much, how much money in your Roth IRA, Roth IRA would it take for you to be like, sweetheart, we're set. We are established. Or maybe more so job security. Like, if my husband could just land this job, I would be set. And I'm so happy. We would be secure. And I would be established. I'd be established. Or maybe... If I could just get that starting spot on the team, then things would like go right for me. Um, relationships would work. I could get this girlfriend or you know whatever. That to me would be established. Or what about you know once the government settles down a little bit and stops frustrating me, then I won't have to grip the steering wheel so hard when I drive to work and listen to the news and my knuckles will turn back to their normal pigmentation instead of just white, right? Then, once the government stops, then I'll be established. Will any of these establish you? No. No. Will any of these provide peace in this life and security in the life to come? No, they won't. So what's it going to take? The answer today that we're going to see in chapter 2 is a rock. That's the answer. The answer that the whole Bible gives, especially that it comes to fruition in the New Testament, is a rock. All right, so it is our task today to figure out what that rock is. And by the end of the sermon, if you do not know what this rock is, then I haven't done my job. Okay, that's the goal. You got to know what the rock is and when it's coming. And it's not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Title Forever Established and Timeless Truth The Message of This Text is that King Jesus will crush all earthly kingdoms and establish his forever. Last chapter ended like this. Here we go. Daniel 1, 21. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We read that last week. And here's the first verse of chapter 2 for this week. It says, in the, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. So here we are learning that, okay, chapter 2 starts and Daniel, the author, is not going chronological on us, right? He's jumping back into the time frame of chapter 1. 
Okay, so while Nebuchadnezzar is still in power, check this out, still in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, uh, plural, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Okay, so here we are, jumping into the narrative. Are you guys ready? Super Bowl Sunday, King Redeemed too? I think you can. I think we can. Let's do it. All right, so the most powerful man in the whole world, world, is terrified about his dreams that he's having. Evidently, these are reoccurring dreams. And I think he's terrified, not just because of the dreams, because of the potentiality of the interpretation of the dreams. I think he knows what they might mean. So he's scared. So Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man in the world, puts out a challenge to all his magicians and his and chanters, and, uh, and he wants them to help him. But here's his challenge. Hey, you've got to not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, which you guys have been doing that. I want you to tell me the dream and its interpretation. You can just like picture those sorcerers and magicians. You can just picture their jaws dropping, going, oh. Who did? <laughs> Their response? Ain't nobody that can do that, right? They initially greeted the king and they said, Oh, king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who lives forever. Which is kind of like a kick in the throat because Nebuchadnezzar, he just had those dreams and he figures, I don't think I'm going to live forever. There's a little bit of irony in there. Tell me the dream and its intention. Nobody can do this. Let, I want you to see this for your own eyes. Daniel 2, 10 and 11. Let your eyes find it. It says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter, or Chaldean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. Watch this. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. If you got a pen, underline that phrase. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is like a little gospel nugget in the Old Testament. As you read the scriptures, you'll notice that a lot of times the bad guys say the things that are most true. And right here, this is exactly the gospel flipped around. They're saying, Psh, the gods can't do it. They don't even dwell with flesh. And our gospel says what? That God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us, to dwell with us in the flesh. That's how the book of John starts out. It's just beautiful. But let's just keep going, okay? So the king, he was angry. And he commanded all the sorcerers, magician, and it says in the text, and all the wise men, which includes Daniel and his three friends and the rest of the guys, okay? So he's mad, and he says, if no one can give me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to destroy all y'all. So Daniel hears about this news. Watch how he responds with his life on the line. Here's verse 14 through 16. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. There we are. Pretty impressive individual, yes? So what's Daniel's next move? He finds out about it with wisdom, prudence. He, he requests a time to go to the king. And then this brother grabs his three buddies by the shirt and says, pray for mercy. That's what he does. Are you with me so far? They pray that night. And God grants Daniel the dream and its interpretation. Let's just pause right there for a second. I think it's really important to say this. Do you, you see the deep conviction that Daniel has on the power of prayer? I mean, his first like knee-jerk reaction when his life is on the line is to pray to God, to gather buddies and say, let's pray together. Pray for mercy that we would not be destroyed. Is it our first reaction? To gather brothers and sisters together? And to pray together. Watch this though. That's not his only cool next move. Watch his next move, okay? Worship. He gets, he gets the dream. He gets the interpretation. And just in your Bibles, look at the indented um, verses. Verses 19 through 24. Look how they're kind of centered and maybe italicized or in quotes. Do you see that? All that ink is Daniel worshiping the Lord, acknowledging his power, telling him his attributes. He's a pray, pray for mercy, gets it. And then he spends ample time worshiping. His life is on the line. And this guy trusts God. He makes an appointment with the king by faith. He prays. God gives him the dream and then he worships the Lord for who he is. The chief thing in this text that he's worshiping him about, like the attribute that he most like distinguishes out of all of them, is that our God is a God who reveals truth, who reveals mysteries. That's what he does. So let's let's just like cap this thought with two things, okay? Here's the first one. Let's learn from Daniel's pattern of life. First one, let's learn from Daniel. For me, personally, I know that when I'm faced with a challenge, like my tendency is to, one, get stressed. Two, get fearful of what could happen. Like, like picture in my mind all the things that could go bad. Three, start YouTubing or Googling solutions. To solve it by myself, right? And then 
Maybe I'll pray, but my prayers look like this. Lord, bless the work of my hands that I've already done. I just pray they won't go bad. <laughs> right? Maybe we can learn a lot from you, okay? He did things a little differently than what I typically do. That's the first one. Here's the second one. The revelation of God leads to the work of God. So here we see God revealing things to Daniel. And Daniel, Daniel turns it back to the Lord and gives him honor and praise. He gives him his attention. His head goes upward. He didn't have the attitude that like I can sometimes have going to the Word like with a quiet time or something like this. More information. More information. And then, sweet. I got my information. Now I'm going to go. But actually, it's like you go to the Scriptures to be revealed of God. And the Scriptures compel you. Revelation compels you to lift your eyes and to worship Him. What a great like, truth that we can learn immediately from this, from this chapter, right? Let me just like reframe it, okay? Um, theology, so this is the study of God, always leads to doxology, the worship of God. So you often say, oh, theology, that's just cold stuff. No, 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 no. It's like absolutely necessary. The study of God. And the study of God is like a fiery furnace. We'll talk about that next week. Like that heats up the heart and causes you to lift your eyes to the Lord and give Him worship. So it should never be like, ah, oh, sweet, I know more stuff. So let that just mark our lives this week. Whenever we're going to the Word in quiet times, or women, when you meet here with your women's Bible study Tuesday night, or when we gather in community groups, or when we come to church next week, that we wouldn't just be like, yeah, I learned more stuff. Although the Lord wants you to, but that you would be passionate about learning and, and worshiping Him with it. That's the goal. Should we get after the dream? Let's do it. Okay. So here's the dream. Okay. It was given to Daniel. Daniel's got the interpretation. Whole lot of ink spilled on it. Let me just summarize it. Okay. The dream is about a statue. It's got a head of gold. It's got an arm and chest of silver. Its midsection is bronze. Its legs of the statue, iron. And then... Toes, feet and toes made of clay and of iron, okay? And then there's this rock. Oh, yeah, there's a rock in there, okay? There's this rock, and it's carved out of a mountain, and it was carved not by human hands, which means it happened supernaturally, okay? And this rock was taken, and it smashed this statue, beat it to a pulp, says in the scriptures like chaff. And that statue was gone and done. Let your eyes fall on 35. Verse 35. What happens to the rock? But the stone that struck the image, 
became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There we are. There's the dream. Let's talk about some of his interpretation, okay? Hang with me. We're not going to go so historical, but we've got to dip into it a little bit, okay? So the head of gold, the head of gold was the Chaldean kingdom. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That was his kingdom, okay? It was called the head for its wisdom and absolute power, and it was gold because of its wealth, okay? This is a real kingdom, real history happening here. Isaiah 14 calls the city of Babylon a golden city. And this empire was the most powerful empire in the whole world. Next, the chest and the arms of silver. This symbolized the empire of the Medes and the Persians. The king was told, um, no more than this. Watch this. Verse 39, there shall arise another kingdom inferior to you. So it's not as rich as the Babylon Empire, not as powerful, not as victorious, but still enough to make it on the statue, right? Uh, this kingdom was founded by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. They had alliance with each other. That's what it means to have two arms that met in the middle. Silver is inferior to gold, and this was the second empire. Right about now, okay? If you've never studied the Bible, or if you've never studied prophecy, or never studied the book of Daniel, you should be like this. Oh, my word. This is exciting stuff. Uh, prophecy given a really long time ago actually came true. This is real history. I was just thinking this was like a, a Bible story where I could learn from Daniel a couple moral lessons about how to make my life better. This is real history. The Bible's true. God wants us to hear something here. Okay? Let's go to the third kingdom. This is the midsection. This is the brass. Okay? Inferior sure to gold. Inferior, yes, to silver. This represents the monarchy of the Grecians, founded by, all right, Alexander the Great. I don't know who said it, but that's right. So Alexander the Great conquered King Darius. He was the last of the Persian emperors. This is the third kingdom, okay? Third kingdom. Look at verse 39 with me again. Here we go. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So Alexander the Great, he was the guy who boasted that he had conquered the whole world. And then he sat down and wept because he didn't have another world to conquer. Right? That was the kind of caliber, the, the fiber of this man. The Grecian Empire. Here we go. Here's the fourth kingdom. This is the kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire. The statue has two legs to represent the two parts of the Roman Empire, the east and the west. And just a Bible note, we actually don't need history to interpret the Bible for us. Daniel straight up, straight up tells us in the latter chapters to come that these were the empires that that, that mean this particular thing on this statue. So the Bible interprets itself. 
Um, we'll see uh, in chapter 7 when we get there, okay? Now, here's where it gets really fascinating, okay? Put on your caps with me. We know that Rome was ruling in the time of Christ, right? Right? Everybody's seen like some Jesus films and they got like cool helmets and things like that, okay? We know that Jesus was the rock, right? Well, amen. Well, how about we just close our service right here? Let's sing Rock of Ages. Let's sing On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Let's go for it. Let's go home, right? But then we're like, wait a second. There's more to this statue. What's up with the iron and clay toes? Like, who's that? See, the first one, the first empire, we got Nebuchadnezzar, a single ruler, represented a single head. It wasn't a six-headed statue or a two-headed statue. It was one head. Next, we had two, two kingdoms represented. They were, they were united together. That iron, the second empire, was, was duly led. The Grecian empire, we'll find out later in Daniel 8, had parts to it, the brass empire. And then we had Rome, two legs. And so we're gleaning from this that like that that God through this dream is giving us not just like um, empires in general, but he's giving us generals. He's giving us leaders. And so we're seeing these toes and going, who were the ten leaders? Who were the ten kings? Did that already happen? I don't remember those guys in history. Because I slept through my sophomore class, just thinking about like Friday Night Lights, it's just a comfort you and encourage you. No, even though you did history, you missed that part. Because these guys haven't come yet. This empire is yet to come, which is where... You start going, oh man, this is exciting. So like, this is where you are inserted in the story, okay? All right, but let's just pause for a second. What about Jesus? I thought he was the rock. What's with the rock then? Let's just read it again, okay? And we'll think critically on this. This is verse 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Pause. You're going, oh, okay, I'm starting to get it. But they're not, they weren't here yet, and Jesus already came. What's the deal? Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So friends, here we go. The people who were waiting for the Messiah were looking for this rock to come and destroy all political powers over them. That's what they wanted. They wanted the Messiah to come ruling with a sword and enacting judgment and taking up his throne on earth. 
But according to this rock in Daniel 2, this rock made smashing blow all kingdoms. It was a blow of judgment, not of grace. So, let's take a pause, okay? Uh, in order for us to go further in this book, I want to, um, one of my roles of the church is Ephesians 4 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I want to introduce a word to you. Some might know it, some might not know it. It's the word millennium, okay? Um, so, when we talk about the millennium, we're talking about the millennial kingdom. So, we're talking about kingdom language here. And there are three views to how this kingdom plays out, okay? The first view is, it's called pre-millennial. Pre-millennial. Pre, that's the prefix. It means before the millennium. So it's meaning that Christ will come back before the thousand-year millennial reign, okay? That's like a quick snapshot on pre-millennialism, Okay. That word, with 25 cents, will buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks just down the road, okay? Just try it. Yeah. <laughs> the second view, amillennial. Amillennial, okay? Ah means like, no. Um, so they don't believe, amillennials don't believe in a, a thousand-year literal reign on earth. It's more of a spiritual reign. And they would believe that we are in the kingdom now. So we're living in the kingdom. And then the third view is post-millennial. This would mean that Christ comes after um, the millennial kingdom, which honestly, just to be straight with you, I, I haven't met anyone who believes in post-millennialism. <laughs> I haven't met them. Maybe they're out there. That's a view. But um, I think the two best ones are pre-millennial and amillennial. Okay? This is... By far not a, a first-tier essential issue in the Christian life. It's salvific. So therefore, it should not cause any division, right? Most Christians in the last 20 years have said that, and they've treated on this discussion because it has caused division. And so therefore, the last 20 years, people don't talk about it anymore. They don't know what it is, and they don't think kingdom millennial thoughts and they just, they just be like, well, I just don't want to. And so they just, they just leave it there, right? But I, I want to just go there for a second, okay? Because uh, it's important for chapter 2 and the rest of the interpretation of this book. All right? So, our millennials um, take this rock to symbolize Christianity in general, okay? Or the church. And... And they would say that because this rock began, started by Jesus, and um, it became, so they'd camp on that word became, it became a mountain. So there's this gradual growth, and as the church grows, the kingdom of God grows until its final fruition, in a millennial perspective, okay? Um, I'm going to teach this book from a pre-millennial perspective. Okay, and guess what? You don't have to agree. It's okay. You can still be a member of our church if you don't agree with like whatever. But like, I just want to be clear that that's that's my convictional belief on on the scriptures, and so I'll teach it like that. Okay, 
Um, here's five reasons why I believe that this stone is Jesus himself, not Christianity or the church, and why it's a stone that's coming, second coming. Okay? Number one, this is a crushing stone. So that stone that we just read about in verses 34 and 5, was it a kind of stone that seeks and the lost? Was it filled with grace and truth? I don't think so. I mean, that stone is coming. It is crushing. It's coming to judge. Sounds a lot like his second coming to me. His first coming, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In his second coming, he'll come a little differently. He'll come to judge. And to me, that is this stone. Number two, Jesus destroyed the Roman Empire. So we're talking about Jesus, his first coming. When he came, his mission wasn't to overthrow this iron empire. If you know your dates, we say that Rome fell in 467 AD. So the people of God, they were, they were waiting for the Messiah. They wanted they wanted a political power. Just read the response from John 6 after Jesus fed the 5,000. It was like, sweet, are you going to like give us free health care too? Because you, you fed us. Are you, are you going to provide there? And are you going to like be king now? We'd like that. Did no, no, that's not characteristic, or that didn't mark his first coming. He came as a suffering servant, not a conquering king. But he will. Number three, the Roman Empire didn't have ten kings or ten leaders at that time. So Daniel tells us these toes, these are leaders. And the rock came and he crushed the leaders. And so I just have a hard time wrapping my head around how Jesus at his first advent crushed the 10 leaders that weren't there yet. I don't think this has happened yet. Uh, number four, the stone be becomes a mountain lickety split. I put that in there just to lighten the mood a little bit, you know? <laughs> so it's not like Greek or anything. You're not missing out on anything. Um, or Aramaic, I guess. This chapter is written in Aramaic. Um, um, this argument, it's not the strongest of the five. And I'll be the first to admit that. But just so, you, so we're equipping and grappling together, there seems to be an immediacy with the crushing blow. Like the dream happens, the blow happens, the kingdoms fall, and it says that the rock became a mountain, right? Our millennial perspective is that this mountain takes a more gradual growth process. And I just think since the rock smashed it, not gradually, but like immediate, I think the mountain grows a little bit more immediate such as Jesus coming, taking up shop, smashing the empires, and setting up, establishing his kingdom. Boom. So Christianity, when it was birthed, 
I don't think it immediately filled the whole earth. So, that would be an argument against uh, millennialism. And then uh, uh, number five, last one. You guys are doing a great job. Jesus' job, Jesus's job, is to conquer the world kingdom, not the church. So the kingdom, I'm sorry, the church is not a kingdom with political realm. That is for the millennial kingdom that is to come. And that interpretation um, could have helped a lot of history uh, when we think back in the past. And it allowed us to inform our church as we move forward that our job isn't to be a conqueror over the government. That's Jesus' job when he comes back. The church is not that kingdom. So let's bring it full circle, then we'll close our time together, okay? So Mike. With this whole established or establishing theme, are you saying that me as a Christian, that I'll never really be established? Because that's how we started our time, right? Can I give you two answers to that? One, when I think of the idea of being established, I think of peace and rest. Our friend Augustine of Hippo, the great African theologian, says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. So the Christian, he can go to Christ, our rock, and find great contentment, joy, peace, and rest. So right now, even though we're not in the millennial kingdom, you can go to the king and find an experience peace. Like you can have a heart that is grounded and established. And actually, that's one of our great witnesses to a lost and dying world. A Christian who's marked with peace. Amen? But here's the second answer. Um, I would say there is... And not just a sense, but a, really a truth that we're not home yet. Governments, empires, kingdoms will continue to get more and more brittle until one day Christ comes back and finishes them all. And when he does that, we will be fully established because he will have established his kingdom. And so that yearning that you have in your heart to be established, that's actually from the Lord. It's from God. But it can't be filled by a Roth IRAs or a certain job or the starting position on the basketball team. It can only be fulfilled by God alone and his coming kingdom. So what are we supposed to do until then? Here's a what and here's a why. Okay. What are we supposed to do until his kingdom is established? Just like how we started. Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. And all these things will be added unto you. And why? 
And check this out. Watch the verbiage that the New Testament uses from Daniel chapter 2. This is 2 Corinthians 5.1. Why should we do this? Why should we seek God's kingdom? It says, For we know that if that our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let's pray. So, Father, we are excited. We're looking forward to your son's return. Would you help us wait well? Would you help us seek first the kingdom of God? Would you help us yearn for him to establish himself on earth? Lord, there's so many tensions, so many ups and downs of life. So many kingdoms that rise and fall. Lord, today we saw the gold to the silver, to the, to the bronze, to the iron, into the clay. Who puts clay at the bottom of a statue? It's so unsettling. It's so brittle. But Lord, your kingdom will be so established and trustworthy. We can bank on it and we can live our lives for it. Would you help us do that? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's respond to God's word through song as we close our time.